few of us thought it looked like Pastor Josh in 10 years. It's a possibility. Yeah. All right. So this man's name is Juan Garcia. Juan Garcia lived in Spain before and during World War II. And when the Germans attacked uh, Poland and France to start World War II, he was a Nazi hater, and he wanted to spy for the British. And so he went to the British and offered his services, and they turned him down. Sorry, we don't need your services. We don't take volunteer spies. So he went to the Americans, and we were not in the war yet. Pearl Harbor had not happened yet. We were not in the war, but he went to us, and the, our military, and he said, I would like to spy for you against the Nazis, and, and uh, we turned him down. So he decided to take matters into his own hands. And he, so he lives in Spain. His name is Juan Garcia. He went to the German embassy in Spain. He marched right in, and he said, I want to work for the Nazis. I want to be a spy. And, of course, he's lying to them. He's going to double back on them, but he volunteers to spy for the Nazis in England. They accepted his offer. So the embassy in Lisbon, Spain hired him as a spy, and they gave him money and a ship ticket to England to go to London and send back all information about British troop movements, Navy ships, submarines, whatever he might be able to see and find, and he was to recruit a network of informers and spies that would work with him and so he said great I'm on my way and he never left Lisbon he went back to his apartment he bought a British uh, travel guide he bought he got a train schedule and a bus schedule for the city of London and he subscribed to the London Times newspaper and he began to make up spy reports to send to his German handler who was just a few blocks away in Lisbon he was so good at what he determined the British were doing, he would mix truth and lies. He couldn't just make everything up because the Germans would figure it out. So he would read the newspaper and he would add those facts with some other stuff that he made up and, and he would send the reports back into his German handler that he was, thought he was in London. He was so good, the British determined that they had a mole in their own military feeding the Nazis information. So they did a sweep of all their personnel trying to figure out who is the infiltrator. The Germans were completely taken in by him. They were certain that he was in London and that he was feeding them accurate information. After about a year of this, he met an American military officer and he told him, he just laid out everything. This is what I'm doing because you guys didn't want my help and the British didn't want my help. I just, I'm just doing it. And the American officer was so impressed with his creativity, his imagination, his genius, that he said, you're coming with me to London. Because we weren't in the war yet still. So he flies this Juan Garcia to London, and he says, look, this is the guy you thought was an inside job. He's making it up from his apartment in Lisbon, Spain. You need to hire him. He's really, really good. So the British hired him as a spy. They codenamed him Garbo. And if you wanted to read a book or see a movie about him, that's what you would look up as Garbo, as his codename. They said he was the greatest actor, so they would give him the codename of the greatest actor of the time. They named him, codenamed him Garbo, and he began to, now he's in London. Uh, the Germans think he has been there all along, but now he's just arrived, and he begins to feed back the Nazis' information over radio codes, little beep, 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 you know, it wasn't Morse code, they had their own secret thing. Uh, he begins to feed them information, but he gives them what the British tell him to say. So they feed him some information that's completely made up, and some that is partly true but partly false, and some that is completely true, but it's safe for the British to let the Nazis know. You with me? Yeah. If it's not corroboratable, if it's not provable, then the Germans are going to catch on pretty soon. You know, because the British didn't know how many real spies are there in England operating? What, what Garbo sends back has to be proven by the other spies that are operating that we haven't caught. So we can't just make up total lies. This is key. This is really important to what we're going later on in Scripture. Garbo couldn't make up lies. He had to mix it with a lot of truth. To, in order to get the Germans to buy it. So he sends them information. Not only does he send them information, he begins to make up a network of people that he's contacted, people who have infiltrated this office or that bureau or this military and so on. He, he creates 27 fictional characters that work for him that speak five different languages because that's how many he spoke. And he has every single one of them had their own handwriting. And 
he would call on the radio either in code beeps or in person, and he would speak in five different languages. He wrote letters to himself in 27 different handwritings. He made up a mistress that he had seduced, and this fictional woman was supposedly the secretary of one of the highest British military officers that there was, and he had seduced her, and she was his mistress, but really it was his wife writing him love letters. She would put lipstick on and kiss the envelope and spray it with perfume and mail it to him so that it would be postmarked, and then he would send that in through secret channels to the Germans, and this is the letter from my mistress, and this is what she says is going on, and all of this is approved by MI5. It was really, this is World War II, James Bond kind of stuff. It really happened. So, so the big thing that the Allies wanted to use him for once we came into the war after Pearl Harbor, the big thing they wanted to use him for was to trick the Germans into believing that we were not going to, on D-Day, we were not going to attack in Normandy where we did the beaches, uh, the beach landings in D-Day. The, uh, we wanted them to think we were going to come to Calais, which is the narrowest spot on the English Channel between England and France. So they began to have Garbo send these messages that there was, General Patton was in England and he had a big uh, division of American troops and that he was going to cross at the narrowest point, that it's called the Pas de Calais, and that, and that there was, he, so, so we had troops there, but we knew that their airplanes could see the real troops getting ready to come across Normandy. So he told, they had them tell him, there is going to be an invasion at Normandy. We wouldn't give him the date, of course, or anything, but they knew the Germans were already prepared for that with their bunkers and their obstacles on the beach, and I'm sure you know your history or you've seen movies and such. But So they couldn't lie and say they weren't coming to Normandy because they knew the Germans knew that, that they were. But he said he had Garbo tell his handler, there is going to be attack at Normandy, but it's a small preliminary one, and it is a fake. The real attack is coming at Calais the next week, so don't move your troops. And what the Allies didn't know was that the Germans so trusted Garbo's information that his radio dispatches and his letters went directly to Hitler. Within two to three days of him transmitting him, Hitler had that information in person. And it was all scripted from the British. So when we did attack on D-Day at Normandy, the Germans they had some troops there, and you know about that battle, I hope, but most of the German troops were a couple hundred miles away in Calais, and they did not move them for two weeks because they believed the reports coming from Garbo. Garbo was so honored on the Nazi side, they so bought it hook, line, and sinker that they gave him the uh, Order of the Iron Cross Award, second class, which had to be personally pinned on by Hitler. But because he was a spy in England, they couldn't do that. So they just gave it to him long distance. <laughs> they totally bought it. They never did figure out, even to in the end of the war, they never figured out he was a double agent and that he, had, he was working for the British and the Americans. Because so many Nazis escaped after the war, there was concern that he would be assassinated when they found out. So the British government took him to Africa, to Angola, and they faked his death of malaria and then he retired in anonymity in South America. So, Garbo is this world-famous, history-famous spy that worked as a double agent. He was just a creative genius. And he infiltrated the German system by offering them information that was mostly true or partly true, mixed in with total fabrications. And they bought it all. You with me? Okay. All right. So now to, I've just got a whole bunch of different stories to tell you, and I'll, I'll show you how they're related when we, get, when we get a little further on down the road. How many of you remember what was going on in Burns, Oregon 13 months ago? Okay, I'm not here to talk about the politics of whether that was good or bad. I just want a, a, a point that's germane to my subject today. The names uh, Ammon Bundy and Lavoy Finnegan mean something to you? Okay. Uh, you know that these militia types, these People that call themselves the Patriot Guard or the th- Idaho and the, the, the Three Percenters and so on, they took over the Malheur Refuge and held it for some number of days, most of January last year. And it was actually a year ago last week that uh, Mr. Finnegan was shot on the road between Burns and John Day. Eight people were put on trial in Portland. And they were actually all acquitted by the jury in Portland. Again, whether you think that's good or bad or whether I think that's good or bad is not my point this morning. 
I learned something that caught my attention real quick. And that during the trial, it comes out that there were 15 FBI informants in the reservation the whole time, posing as members of the militia. I know that some of you would say, like, Mitch, you've gone uh, totally tinfoil hat on us here. <laughs> but this, this is not conspiracy theorist website stuff. This is from the Oregonian. It's from the records of the district court. It's not from the militia's websites or anything like that. Uh, there were 15 people either paid by the FBI to inform or they were FBI agents going in undercover, posing as members of the militia. Three of those were so trusted by the group that was protesting and, ta- and took over the refuge. They, three of them were so trusted, they were in the inner circle running the meetings and making decisions. So that from day two, the FBI was inside the refuge steering the decisions that the militia group made and then reporting back about what their plans were and what they were doing. The guy that was driving Ammon Bundy to John Day the day he was arrested was an FBI agent, and he didn't know it. He thought he was his bodyguard. Again, agreement or disagreement is not what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about infiltration. I'm here to talk about spying. I know this happens, and I know this is the way law enforcement and militaries and national governments and CIAs and KGBs work, I know that, uh, I hope you know, that in North Korea and China, it is illegal to be a Christian. And the church has to meet in secret. But our brothers and sisters in China and North Korea know they are being watched. They know they have people in their church meetings who are secret police. And they get reported on. I told you just last spring of a Chinese pastor who was hacked to death with axes by North Korean agents who knew that he was witnessing to people in North Korea, even though he wasn't involved in smuggling people out of North Korea, like a lot of ministries are. Uh, They found him, and he was found with his head nearly chopped off, and his back was opened up with axes. The Chinese pastors, they know they've been infiltrated. There's people in their meetings that are watching and reporting. A year plus ago, we had Pastor Ingolf Schmidt here from Germany. He grew up in eastern in East Germany during the Cold War days when it was communist, and he told you about stories of having to go through secret passageways and doors and downstairs and, and under streets and back up into the basement of the next building to, to go to church and how everything was being watched and they were being followed and some of the secret police agents were so dumb, you know, that they're out there acting like they're fishing, but everybody in the neighborhood knows there's no fish in that pond. You know, they're, they're there with microphones and cameras and watching what goes on, and he told you, that when the Berlin Wall came down and, and the new government came in and, and said, every, you know, communism ended and things, people were set free, that he got his case file. And it was a foot thick. And, that, and he said it was the most tragic thing to read through there because I found out there was all sorts of police reports on me made by people in my church who had been paid. Everybody knew, come on hard times, go tell the police something, they'll pay you. And he said there was a bunch of names of people that I considered friends people that I trusted in my church who had reported on me that I'd preached this sermon or I'd spoken this, you know, because it's completely illegal to preach the gospel. This is Pastor Richard Vermbrand from the communist days in Romania uh, during the Cold War. He and his wife, Sabina, this is them in the United States later after they were older and had been set free. But he spent 14 years in a communist prison. She spent, is it eight You need to read their books. His is called Tortured for Christ, and hers is called The Pastor's Wife. She spent eight years in in a prison, but she worked with the church longer and more than he did. He he was with all the pastors in prison. He has 18 holes in his body where they burned him with red-hot iron. There's guys that had their fingernails pulled out. There's guys that were crucified, guys beat to death. He's had some horrendous stories. Sarah told me just last night they put one guy on a cross and laid it down on the floor and urinated and defecated on him. Um, He said, he talks about how much they loved their communist guards. They wanted them to get saved. They'd preach at them. He said, said, we knew we'd get beat if if we preached, but the pastors in the prison cell would preach to each other. He said, we finally just agreed. 
everybody would be happy. We were happy preaching, and they were happy beating us. So we were all happy. That's his attitude in prison. It was just amazing. Anyway, Sabina's book mentions, though, a section in her book. It talks about the, the church who was not in jail, the church that was still living at home and having to meet in secret out in, in the city. They knew they'd been infiltrated. They knew there were secret police watching them. They knew there, there were people posing as Christians who had snuck into the church as spies and were turning people in and so on. And somebody suggested we should infiltrate the Communist Party. We should put Christians in communist leadership so that they, so we can find out who the spies are, who are the secret police agents, what, what do they know and what are they planning to do for us. There was some that thought that was morally wrong and then others thought it should be done and there was this debate, this moral debate about whether it was Christian or not to spy on your government and so on. So again, the history and the, the issue is not my point. It's just, I just want to point out and tell you lots of different stories here before we start in uh, about infiltration, spying, counterfeits, frauds, and so on. Nehemiah in the Bible has this issue come up in his life and in his work for God. After the Jews were in Babylon for 70 years, God sets them free uh, and they begin to turn to return to Jerusalem. This is 500 and some years before Jesus. This is at the end of the Old Testament, end of the history of the Old Testament. Nehemiah is going to build a wall around Jerusalem. And that's what the whole story is. The entire book is him building a wall. And there is opposition to this wall. And it says, Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Philistines heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired. They were furious. They all made plans to come and fight and throw us into confusion and stir up trouble, the NIV translation says. We prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. From Nehemiah 6. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, who was a secret informer, and he said, Nehemiah, let's go into the temple and close the doors because men are coming at night to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Should I run for my life into the temple? I will not go. I knew that God had not sent him, but that Tobiah and Sanballat had paid him to speak against me. They paid him to frighten me so that I would be intimidated and make me sin. And then they could give me a bad name to shame me. And I prayed, my God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat and what they have done. Also, remember the prophetess Nodiah and the other prophets who have been trying to frighten me. Also from Nehemiah 6. During those days, many letters went back and forth between Tobiah and the nobles of Judah. Many in Judah had sworn allegiance to him because of his family and political connections. They kept telling me about Tobiah's good deeds, and then they told him everything I said. And Tobiah kept sending threatening letters to intimidate me. So Nehemiah not only had these guys who opposed him, and the Bible actually doesn't even really say why. They were just from an enemy people, and they didn't want Jerusalem to be defended. So they come, and they threaten attack, and then they do attack militarily. And when that doesn't work, they try to scare Nehemiah into stopping the work. And when that doesn't work, then they begin to pay Israelites. They are paying fellow Jews to go in and slander him. You read the whole book, you find out they lied about him. Um, they printed it in the paper. Uh, I mean, it's, they, they try every tactic they can to shut down Nehemiah to get him from, to stop building this wall. And he, they are paying fellow Jews to do it to him because they can't get it done. And so Tobiah and Samballot have agents from Nehemiah's own people in Jerusalem working against him. Do you see it? Okay. Some of you will have heard about the undercover video sting on Planned Parenthood a year, a year and a half ago. He had undercover video where he went posing as a tissue buyer for a medical lab company and he wants to buy aborted fetuses and Planned Parenthood is selling them to him. And not just one office or one clinic or one person, but he goes all over the country. And it's just a systemic thing that Planned Parenthood not only aborts babies, but then they sell the body parts. This doctor here over lunch was saying, yeah, I'm really good at getting hearts and lungs and livers out intact and I can, we can sell them to you. Even though it is a complete federal felony, and it's actually a crime in most nations of the world to sell human body parts, Planned Parenthood right here in America was doing so. But this 
young kid. He's only in his early 20s. Got in with a camera and filmed it. And even Planned Parent, one of the Planned Parenthood officials on camera says, if this were to ever be known by the public, we'd be in big trouble. It would be a huge PR disaster. And it was. Some of you may have seen a few weeks ago this video by a different group called Project Veritas. These two guys were planning a terrorist attack on Inauguration Day. Just a few weeks ago, they were going to acid bomb one of the buildings in Washington, D.C. in the ventilation system to disrupt one of the inauguration balls. And this is, I don't know if it's the same group that burned the limo. I, I don't know. And again, the politics of it all is not my point. I'm just here to demonstrate that this group, this, what this group does, this Project Veritas, is they, they have people infiltrating groups who are domestic terrorists or corrupt politicians and so on, and they wear cameras in their glasses and they just sit at restaurants and they talk to people and they, then they produce what they got. In fact, since the election, one of these Project Veritas undercover reporters has on video a New York City election commissioner saying... Oh, yeah, the public has no idea. We, we put people on buses and we bust them around town all day long and they vote all day long. An election commissioner for the city of New York City is on video saying, oh, yeah, we load people on buses and they, they vote all day long. So, again, the politics of it all is not my point. My point is the power of infiltration. Because people can claim that there's voter fraud, but when it's on video and the elected officials are saying, oh, yeah, we are the ones doing it. That's a lot of power. This is the Hopewell Missionary Baptist Church in Greenville, Mississippi. And sometime back in September, probably, it was firebombed. It is an all-black church. And whoever burned the building printed swastikas on the side, and it says, Vote Trump, across the bottom. So immediately, the FBI was treating this as a hate crime. It was obviously done by a white racist who is uh, in favor of Trump. Within two weeks, they, elect, they arrested a black man who was a member of the church who did it on purpose to frame white Trump supporters. His name's Andrew McClintock. He's 45 years old. He is, this is not conspiracy theory website stuff. This is the New York Times. He is arraigned for burning his own church to try to frame Trump supporters. I have a friend who's the former Speaker of the House for the Oregon Legislature, and he told me during the election cycle, he said, absolutely nothing is what it looks like. He said, everything is done to produce a result. Nothing is what it looks like. Even in Jesus' own inner circle, Satan infiltrated Jesus' own inner circle. The ultimate infiltrator is Judas. The Bible says Judas was possessed by Satan, personally. Isn't that interesting? The Bible doesn't say Satan ever entered into another person, ever. But it says Satan entered into Judas. And what did, Judas didn't go out and have a seance. He didn't go out and drink blood. He didn't go out and bite the head off a bat. He did something selfish. Hello? Your definition of what is satanic and what is evil needs to change. I'm not saying it's okay to go to seances or chew the heads off bats. I'm saying when we talk about Satan, our idea of what he, what he would make a person do, oh man, that must have been the most drooling maniac person ever. No, he was completely sane and in charge of his own faculties. He knew exactly what he was doing. He did the most evilly selfish thing in history. Hello. Judas was a total fraud. And he's right in Jesus' inner circle. Possessed by Satan. He's the ultimate infiltrator. He's the ultimate spy. And he's in charge of the money. I'm sure that wasn't an accident. So all of that is introduction. Here we go. I'm here to tell you, after all that, I'm here to tell you, this room has been infiltrated by spies. I'm totally serious. And I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. 
I know somebody's thinking, okay, Mitch, but we're, the FBI is not here watching us. We're not, we're, it's legal for us to be here. What do you mean? I'm totally serious. This room right now has infiltrators in it, frauds, counterfeit Christians who are working for the enemy. Jesus said so. Matthew 13, Jesus said, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. A tear, you've heard me tell you this before, but for those of you who missed out, a tear is a weed that looks like wheat, but it's poisonous. All right? It looks just like wheat, but it's fake. An enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared, and the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants went up to him and said, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, and then gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus said, God's field is full of fakes. And not just frauds, poisonous fakes. Hello? Later on in this chapter, the disciples ask him, what did you mean by that? And he says, the bad seeds are the sons of the evil one. Those are Jesus' exact words. The sons of the evil one are in, and God's field is full of the sons of the evil one. He says, the one that sowed the bad seed is the devil. Jude mentions these folks in his letter, Jude verses 3 and 4. Beloved, I was eager to write to you concerning our salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude's like, guys, I really wanted to write you a happy, exciting letter, but I've got to warn you, People have crept into our church, and they are not God's people. It says they turn, certain men have crept in unnoticed. They are ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness. That means open sin. People who claim to be Christians but are hypocrites. Because they are sinning and they don't care. Or maybe they hide it but they don't fear God. Are you with me? Do you hear me? Jesus said, God's field is full of frauds. Jude said, people who claim to be Christians have crept in unnoticed, and they are not godly. They are ungodly, and they turn God's grace into permission to sin. In 2 Timothy, Paul warns Timothy about these folks. Chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. See it? Having been taken captive by him to do his will. Paul says, Timothy, There's going to be people who want to argue with you all the time. Don't take their bait. They're just working for Satan. Come on. Are you with me? I am not saying there's people in this room who are going to go home and have a seance and report to Satan about everything we did here this morning. That's not what I mean. Okay? Because mostly the tares don't know that they're tares. They're not knowingly agents of Satan. They deceive themselves about their own, selfish, or their own salvation and their own self-righteousness. Jude 12, he continues on in his book. He says, they eat with you without fear, serving only themselves. So mostly, counterfeit Christians are not afraid at all. They're totally unaware that they're counterfeit because they are trusting in their own self-righteousness and their own goodness and I'm speaking to some right now you're fearless because you are arrogant about your own goodness you're confident in your own salvation you're fearless regarding God and sin 
selfish, demanding, pushy, self-inserting, whining. Craig Groeschel calls these people Christian atheists. That's the title of his book, Christian Atheists. People who claim to believe in God but live like there isn't one. Hello, Christian atheists. People who claim to believe in God and are in church on Sundays, but they live like there isn't a God. There's four kinds of counterfeit Christians that I can identify. There's probably more, but these are the four that I see that bring really good results for the devil. Number one, there is a type of person in church who is always causing turmoil. They're always causing trouble or division or stirring up gossip or complaining or arguing or calling a meeting, and they wear down people to get what they want. Jacob told you two weeks ago about the couple that wasted an entire year of their ministry time just demanding meetings, demanding to have their way and to be heard and to talk about their feelings. There's a kind of person, maybe you've been to church with one before, who's just always up in arms and has to have their way and is pouting and inserting him or herself in everything. Another kind of counterfeit Christian that I see that brings good results for the devil is the person who brings moral compromise into the church. There's people who are not afraid to sin while maintaining a very good life, quote, in quotes there. And they make, quote, small sins, unquote, look like normal Christian life. And so the young people in the church or the new Christians come and they're like, oh, hey, well, that person, he's a good guy and he goes to my church and he claims to be a Christian and I know he watches Game of Thrones, so it must be all right for me. It must not be that bad. A third type of fake Christian that I see is people who bring doubt and fear about God's Word. People who deny God's Word. Remember, just like Garbo couldn't feed the Nazis a total line of made-up stuff, it had to be mixed mostly with truth, or they weren't going to believe it. The devil isn't going to bring somebody into our church who says, the Bible is all fake, it's a lie, you all need to stop believing it. We would laugh that person out of the church. So he brings people in who say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe the Bible, but just not that virgin birth part. That's obviously impossible. I believe the Bible, but just not that, and that miracles and healings and demons and all angels. I just, that's all mythology, that's old stuff. Hello. From the virgin birth to the resurrection to the second coming to the creation story, to the Red Sea parting, demons, healing, spiritual activity, counterfeit believers claim to be Christians and they claim they believe the Bible, but just not that part. And they sow doubt or fear regarding the promises of God and the Word of God into the church. And they don't know it, but they are Satan's agents. A fourth type of counterfeit Christian that I see is the one who brings shame and mockery because they've led a very publicly and a public and loud Christian life, but then they're caught in really gross hypocrisy. And way too often we see that in the local church and in the national news, that some preacher's cheating on his wife, or he's up there denouncing homosexuality while living in it. That kind of grotesque hypocrisy in front of the world deeply stains the name of Jesus and benefits Satan powerfully. Four kinds of counterfeit Christians. Those who are always stirring up trouble, trying to have their own way. Those who live a good life but excuse their own little sins. Those who doubt God's word. And those who bring shame on us because they are open hypocrites. This book was written in 1971 called Rules for Radicals by a man in Chicago named Saul Alinsky. The book is dedicated to Lucifer. It's a political action community organizer kind of a book for socialists, but it's dedicated to Lucifer. It says, I want to dedicate my book to Lucifer because he's the original radical who rebelled against the establishment and won his own kingdom. <laughs> 
this Saul Alinsky guy, two weeks before he died. He didn't know that because he died of a heart attack all of a sudden. But it just so happened that this interview with a journalist happened two weeks before he died. And for some ironic reason, the afterlife came up. And he told the journalist, he said, if there is an afterlife and if I have any say about it, I unreservedly choose hell. And a journalist said, why? He said, because hell would be heaven for me. I've always organized the radicals to fight the system and I'll go to hell and we'll, I'll organize everybody there and we'll fight the system. So that's the guy who wrote this. Just so you know, his spirit, his heart, his attitude. Okay? There is actually a list of rules in this book. There's 12 rules for radicals on how to defeat the system and how to override the government and so on. But I just want to give you some quotes from his book because... This is not just, I'm not here to talk about politics at all. The, the fact that this guy admired Lucifer as his hero and said he wants to go to hell tells you about his heart. So these are not just leftist political strategies. This is Satan's strategies, and you will recognize a lot of them. From Saul Linsky's Rules for Radicals, look for ways to increase insecurity, anxiety, and uncertainty in your enemy. Is that not true in your own heart? Hello? Do you not see that coming from leftists leftists in American politics also? Which I'm not here to talk about. But in your own heart, is that not what Satan does? Oh, absolutely. Make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. You can kill them with this because no one can possibly obey all their own rules. Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It's irrational. It's infuriating. It also works as a key pressure point to force the enemy into concessions. Is that not accusation, ridicule, insinuation? Just asking questions. You know, Satan never asks, Satan never tells people in the Bible or in our, in our own lives. He doesn't tell us what to believe. He just asks questions that cause doubt. Right with Eve at the very beginning. Did God really say? Satan never told Adam and Eve to disobey God. He just asked them a question that brought doubt. Hello? Insinuation, accusation, ridicule. Lies are the most powerful weapon there is. Keep the pressure on. Never let up. Keep trying new things to keep the opposition off balance. As the opposition masters one approach, hit them from the flank with something new. Is that not American politics and is that not your own life? Just one thing after another and you got 18 dragons you don't know which one to fight first. Keep hitting them over and over. Maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. It is this unceasing pressure that results in the reactions from the opposition that are essential for the success of the campaign. Threat is usually more terrifying than action itself. Imagination and ego can dream up more consequences than any activist. Just threaten to do bad stuff and people will cave. They'll do what you want. Push harder, or push hard enough to cause violence. Violence from the other side can win the public to your side because the public sympathizes with the underdog. Go after people, not institutions. People fall faster than institutions. Pick your target, freeze him, personalize him, then polarize him. Cut off his support network and isolate the target from all sympathy. So again, this is written as a political action community organizer book, but uh, this guy dedicates it to Satan and says he wants to go to hell when he dies. Ironically, two weeks before he does die. I'm telling you, this is not a political book. This is Satan's, we're seeing Satan's poker hand. And then get this, watch this, from the same book, same author, here we go, there's a picture of him there. True revolutionaries do not flaunt their radicalism. They cut their hair, put on suits, and infiltrate the system from within. Solinsky was wise enough to know radicals can't act radical. There's a whole bunch of 20-something-year-olds in Portland that got to figure that out. (laughs) Radicals are never going to win when they act radical. He says, we cut our hair, we put on a suit, we enter the system, and we bring the system down from within the system. Satan knows he cannot bring down the church, but he can bring down you and me. And he can do that a couple billion times, and he has destroyed the church. Hello? Saul Linsky wrote, don't go after the institution, go after the person, because people are weak. People will cave in fear. Push them hard enough to make them mad, and they'll do something they regret. 
Come on, is that not true? Do you not get angry or scared and you blow it? You make a really bad decision. But it's never from the outside. Satan can't put somebody in front of you saying, you need to lose your temper today. That would be a really good idea. (laughs) Get behind me, Satan. But if he could just poke you with circumstances and people enough, you will blow your temper. He's like, he's never going to show up in your heart and say, you need to stop trusting God and you need to be terrified. No, I'm not going to stop trusting God. But through circumstances, from the inside, oh man, does he have easy access. Hello? He isn't going to come and tell our church to enter into heresy or blasphemy or decide that Jesus isn't the Son of God or that we shouldn't be baptized or that God, the Bible isn't God's Word, but He can put people in here to cause trouble. He can put people in here through selfishness or through unbelief, through a refusal to believe the Word of God and obey it, can bring moral compromise and tremendous shame upon the church of Jesus through gross hypocrisy. Saul Alinsky, there was a young 20-something girl in college named Hillary Rodham who became a big fan of his, and she wrote her senior thesis about his work in Chicago. He actually contributed directly to her paper. When she became the first lady, they made sure that there was no public copies of that paper left. A 20-something-year-old Barack Obama in Chicago uh, enrolled in the school that Alinsky had started before he died. But again, this is not just political stuff. This is spiritual stuff. Because accusation, complaints, demands, arguments, insinuations, protests, riots, lawsuits, insults, questioning truth and history, doubt and fear don't just happen in the streets of Portland and Washington, D.C. They happen in this church and they happen in our hearts. So he knows he's not going to get me to stand up and preach something blasphemous or to get you to just jump in bed with a stranger by tonight. But he can plant seeds inside God fields that slowly bring moral compromise and laziness, and doubt, and unanswerable questions, and weariness, and busyness, and fear, and numbness, and shame, and accusation. Again, you heard Jacob's story two weeks ago about the couple that just wore them down, with demanding, meeting after meeting, and I want my way, and you're not listening, and we feel so bad, and, and just con- con- intentionally misunderstanding, and I, I've got my own stories of resistant people and troublesome people that want to challenge everything I say and send emails and demand meetings and I want this and I want that and we've been slandered online we've been slandered in the observer I don't even tell you about some of it because it's just not worth getting you mad about and besides scripture I have this one story that's helped me so much that um there was a Ronald Reagan was president. There was an aide that was really upset about something that had been said about Reagan, and he was asking, "Why don't you fight back?" And Reagan was Reagan just said, "I just have to laugh. I just have to laugh," and that has helped me so many times because <laughs> that's what God's doing. As the Bible says God is sitting on His throne, laughing at the plans of the enemy. Uh, some of the things that have been said about our church are so stupid. It's just not even worth arguing about and drawing attention to. Nasty stuff. And I I want to defend the church. I want to defend myself. I want to defend Jesus. And I was just like, no, it's it's just not even worth it. Who are these people who Jude says have come in to spy out our freedom? Again, I don't think there's anybody here that's into the occult and is some secret Satan spy. That's not what the Bible means. But there are people here, you are hiding sin. And you know it. And you don't care. Or maybe you're sinning and you have excused it so much that you're not hiding it. Because I see it. 
on your Facebook page. I see the words you use, the movies you've gone to watch, and the things you talk about, and the jokes you post. And the Bible says, do not keep company. Do not even share a meal with someone who is unrepentant about their sin. Why is that? Because hypocrisy will rub off on you. They will always drag you down. Hey, let's go to this movie. Hey, let's play this game. They'll tell a joke that you'll be embarrassed to not laugh at. And at first you know, it eats your conscience. Like, no, that's not okay. But after a while, you get used to the relationship and you find yourself pulled away from Jesus. Do not keep company. Don't even share a meal with people who claim to be Christians and are not living it for real. Romans 1 says, No one who sins sexually will inherit the kingdom, nor those who approve of such. Even approving of sexual sin. We're not in the kingdom. And I don't think it's an issue in this church necessarily, not in it, but the American church as a whole. We are being dragged down into the approval of sexual sin. Those people are not in the kingdom. People who speak fear and doubt, people who gossip or accuse or divide brethren. The fake Christian doesn't read their Bible or worship very regularly. They don't make time for concentrated prayer. They just put on a show and coming to church in the morning. The fake Christian is one person at church and another person at school or at work. If you would be afraid for your classmates to see you here, we got a problem. If you laugh at jokes or... Talk about things with your friends at work or at school that you wouldn't hear. That's the definition of hypocrisy. The fake Christian does not give their time to serve other people. The fake Christian is not afraid to not tithe, even though they got plenty of money for their own car and vacations. They may use profane language. They're not afraid to watch really nasty stuff. Sit and watch Fifty Shades or Deadpool or Game of Thrones with no conscience problem whatsoever. Go places on the internet that not only is Jesus not looking at it with you, he left your house. You younger people, some of you really scare me for your souls. And what scares me more is not the fact that you went and saw Deadpool with no conscience problem whatsoever. It's the fact that five of you went and nobody spoke up. These kind of people, Jesus is a side priority. He's a conscience soother. He's a buddy, but he isn't their Lord because he can't tell them, no, you don't do that. Really, a lot of you are just Mormons. You believe in Jesus, you're a good person, you have a community of faith, but you don't know Jesus, you don't have any life or power. And some of you are not even as good a people as my Mormon neighbors. I'm not angry at anybody. (laughs) Nobody is in trouble. I love you all dearly, but I have got to say it as plain as I can say it. Because the only way to wake up a deceived person is to slap you in the face. I have to say it very, very plain. Because Jesus said it very, very plain. He said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, and their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me. That's a really serious charge. Jesus said, you can come to church on Sunday and worship, and it is a waste of my time, and it is a waste of your time, because you aren't living for me. In vain do you worship me means it does no good. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or are greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people like that. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. It is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. Paul makes it very clear. Our holiness is not our separation from our neighbors. 
I'm sorry, we have to go join a monastery and have nothing to do with the world. That's not holiness. That's judgment. That's self-righteousness. That's fear. Love your neighbors. Love your coworkers. Love your classmates. But if somebody in this church or any other church claims to be a Christian and they're taking you to movies you shouldn't see, they're taking you places you shouldn't go, they're telling jokes you know Jesus would not laugh about, if their vocabulary wouldn't be coming out of Jesus' mouth, do not have anything to do with that person because hypocrisy rubs off. And I'm very sorry that some of you younger people are seeing that in some of the older folks in this church. Do not let somebody else's choices excuse your conscience. If it bothers your conscience the first time, do not do it. Do not, do not explain away your conscience. Keep your conscience tender. It has nothing to do with judging people in the world. They aren't hypocrites because they aren't claiming anything, but we are. 2 Timothy 3 says, Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. Oh, and by the way, they will have a form of godliness. I'm not speaking of people in the world. I'm talking about fakes in the church. They will have a form of godliness but deny its power, have nothing to do with them. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. That whole list is pretty bad. Paul says, I'm not talking about the people of the world. I'm talking about the frauds in the church. Matthew 23, 27 to 28, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So some of you are thinking, yeah, preach it, Mitch, this is great. There's three people I wish were here to listen. (laughs) Yeah, well, examine yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself. As to whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? We're not here to judge anybody else. We're here to examine our own hearts. Is there any fraud in me? Am I settling for religion instead of Jesus? Is there anything where I have said Jesus is Lord, but I didn't actually let him be Lord? Am I the counterfeit? Am I the infiltrator? Am I the one with the problem? That is all we are here to look at this morning. 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul, the man who wrote most of the New Testament, who was closer to Jesus and had greater revelation and more miracles than anybody else in the New Testament, said, I beat myself into obedience to God. Because I don't want to have preached salvation to all these other people and then I lose it myself. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, we really, really want the power of the Holy Spirit but not outside of obedience to Jesus. This verse is not condemning people who cast out demons and want to see miracles and all, but we cannot chase that instead of holiness. We want them both. But notice, Holy Spirit power does not save us. Obedience to Jesus saves us. Please, please get that. These people had real miracles and power in their life, but they didn't obey. I'm not here to point anybody out. I'm just here to issue the warning from Jesus that there are counterfeits. 
not just in this church, but in any church, in the church, Satan has planted his weeds. Have nothing to do with them and make sure that you aren't one. Well, how do I do that, Mitch? How do I know whether I'm the counterfeit or not? Well, I have some questions to ask you. Timothy Keller wrote these. If you know that name, good. If you don't, um, he's a trustworthy guy. He's a good guy. Timothy Keller uh, had an article where he said, there are three questions that fake Christians can't answer. Three questions that fake Christians can't answer. And I think they're really, really wise and really smart. Number one, what has happened lately in your time with God? If it's been two weeks, you're a fraud. If you can't answer what has happened very recently in your time with God, whether that's reading the Bible or praying or worshiping or however you do it, what has happened recently in your time with God? Fake Christians don't have time with God, so they can't answer that question. But Mitch, I'm busy. Get unbusy. If in the last three or four days you haven't had real alone time with God, quit faking it. Number two, what have you repented of lately? A fake Christian cannot answer that because they haven't repented of anything recently. In my case, it, it better be every day. Maybe every hour is what I should be, but at least every day. Have you humbled yourself to apologize to God or your spouse or your children or your parents? If not, you are fake. You're just here to be religious. If you are not honestly repenting of your sin. Questions fake Christians can't answer. What's happening with your time with God lately? What have you repented of last? And number three, how is your awareness of His mercy and your wickedness increasing? If you are not regularly aware of how desperate you are for salvation, if that is not increasing in you, that you are at God's mercy, you are a fraud. How is your awareness of His mercy increasing? I think that's a really good test. If you can't answer two, or two of those three questions in real honesty in the last day or two or three, better take serious stock of whether you're actually saved or not. Of whether this whole thing is a religious game or whether you're really meaning it. And from your heart, you're living it in truth. What is happening in your time with God? What have you repented of lately? And how is your awareness of His mercy and your wickedness increasing? If you can answer two of those three questions with solid answers from the last half of the week, you're in good shape. You're walking with the Lord. If you'd have to think about it a while, think about it a while. Don't make up an answer. If you can't figure it out, you got some figuring out to do. Again, I'm here because I love you. I like you. I'm not angry. God is not even angry, he's, but he's got a very blunt warning to tell you this morning. Stop faking it. Don't be the tear in my wheat field. Don't be that who is taken by Satan unaware. That's scripture. They're unaware they have been taken captive by Satan to do his will in the church by causing trouble or bringing sin. I just want to give you a little time for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. I don't know what this is going to look like. First service, nobody came up during the prayer time, but a whole bunch of people came up to me afterwards and said, thank you, I needed to get right with God. I needed to hear that word. There's something I have let compromise my faith. I have let a relationship or a busyness come in between me and God. So maybe some of you right now, everybody close your eyes, bow your head, 
We're not judging anybody else. We're just going to examine our own heart. Not to look for failure, but to deal with ourselves in honesty. Don't be afraid to be honest about how much you need God. Some of you here, you know you are a hypocrite. You know you have a sin and you aren't trying to defeat it. You're just trying to keep it hidden so that you don't lose face. You haven't confessed it. You would be terrified to do so. It's time to get right with God and your pastor. Maybe your spouse or whoever else you're sinning against. Some of you aren't in open hypocrisy, but you do have a sin that easily comes against you. And your conscience is always dirty. And you have a hard time believing God loves you. You have a hard time worshiping and praying, reading your Bible because you feel bad about who you are and how you've behaved. Others of you aren't stuck in any big sin. It's just laziness or busyness has gotten in your way of daily time with God. And you're going through religious motions and you're in church a couple times a month and you're not a bad person, but you're really not living for the Lord. You're just taking care of your daily life. Some of you have been trying really hard, but there isn't any fire. God, I used to feel alive. I used to want to read my Bible. I used to be excited to pray for people or share you. Your fire has just gone out for one reason or another. Some of you are in blind selfishness. Whatever it is, repent now. Whatever the Holy Spirit brings up, say yes to Jesus and no to that other thing. Or maybe it's something he's told you to do, but you've been scared to obey and it's killed your faith. It's killed your heart because you haven't obeyed. So he withdrew. And he's standing there waiting for you to obey and you've been resisting for a long time. Or maybe it's a relationship that you need to give up because that person is dragging you away from Jesus. They're bringing you into compromise. Say no to whatever you need to say no to to say yes to Jesus. Say yes to whatever you need to say yes to to say yes to Jesus. Lord, we repent of sin. We repent of compromise. We repent of excusing ourselves from having to needing to obey your word. We forget, uh, we repent of getting busy. Too busy. Letting the cares of the world rise up and choke out the fire you've put in our soul. Lord Jesus, I ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit on us now to bring the fear of the Lord, to bring conviction of sin, to bring your holy water, to soften hard soil, bring your fire to burn out what is unclean, bring the life of your Holy Spirit to spring back to life, hearts you've gotten old or cold. 
Break through all justification and excuses, Lord. Conquer our hearts. Then you are so gentle and kind, you just knock on the door and wait for us to open it. So we say yes. We open the door and let you in. We repent of having areas and decisions and pieces of our lives that we haven't let you into. Say yes to you in everything. All that you are and all that you have for us. Because we trust that you are good and right. No matter what it costs us, you are worth it. No matter what we have to do or what we have to give up, you are worth it. We do not want to be hypocrites. We want to be your pure people, full of righteousness and power and truth. That we may offer your Holy Spirit to the world, to anyone that would come and join us in a life of fiery purity, a life of the power of truth, a life of heavenly love. Forgive us for putting filth in our eyes and our ears, going places we know we shouldn't have gone. Forgive us for fearing what people would think rather than what you think. Forgive us for trying to attract other people instead of attracting you. Forgive us for being frauds. To whatever extent, Lord. That we have been settling for religion or image instead of real faith and real obedience. We repent and we turn back to you right now this morning. We love you and we bless you. We praise your holy name.